Part 5 of Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion by David Hume. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leon Meyer. Part 5. But to show you still more inconveniences, continued Philo, in your anthropomorphism, Please to take a new survey of your principles. Like effects prove like causes. This is the experimental argument, and this, you say too, is the sole theological argument. Now, it is certain that the liker the effects are which are seen, and the liker the causes which are inferred, the stronger is the argument. Every departure on either side diminishes the probability, and renders the experiment less conclusive. You cannot doubt of this principle, neither ought you to reject its consequences. All the new discoveries in astronomy which prove the immense grandeur and magnificence of the works of nature are so many additional arguments for a deity according to the true system of theism. But according to your hypothesis of experimental theism, they become so many objections, by removing the effect still farther from all resemblance to the effects of human art and contrivance. For if Lucretius, even following the old system of the world, could exclaim, Quis regere immensi suman, quis haberi profundi indumanu validas, potest est moderanter habenas, quis pariter coelos omnis convertere, et omnis inibis aetiris teres sufire feraces, omnibus inquis locus esse omni tempore, praesto. Translation note. From On the Nature of Things by Lucretius, Book 2, Lines 1095 through 1102, translated by William Ellery Leonard. Who hath the power, I ask, who hath the power to rule the sum of the immeasurable, to hold with steady hand the giant reins of the unfathomed deep? Who hath the power at once to roll a multitude of skies, at once to heat with fires ethereal all the fruitful lands of multitudes of worlds, to be at all times in all places near? In translation note. If Tully esteemed this reasoning so natural as to put it into the mouth of his Epicurean, Quibes enim oculus animi intueri potuant wester plato fabricum ilam tanti operas, qua construi adeo at quae edificari mundum facit, quae molitio, quae ferramenta, qui vectis, quae machinae, qui minstri tanti muneres fuerant, Quem ad modum autum obedire et parere voluntati architecti aer, ignes, aqua, terra, potuerant. Translation note from On the Nature of the Gods by Cicero, Book 1, Section 8, translated by C. D. Young. For with what eyes of the mind was your Plato able to see that workhorse of such stupendous toil, in which he makes the world to be modeled and built by God? What materials, what tools, what bars, 
what machines, what servants, were employed in so vast a work? How could the air, fire, water, and earth pay obedience and submit to the will of the architect? End translation note. If this argument, I say, had any force in former ages, how much greater must it have at present, when the bounds of nature are so infinitely enlarged, and such a magnificent scene is open to us? It is still more unreasonable to form our idea of so unlimited a cause from our experience of the narrow productions of human design and invention. The discoveries by microscopes, as they open a new universe in miniature, are still objections, according to you, arguments, according to me. The further we push our researches of this kind, we are still led to infer the universal cause of all to be vastly different from mankind, or from any object of human experience and observation. And what say you to the discoveries in anatomy, chemistry, botany? These surely are no objections, replied Cleanthes. They only discovered new instances of art and contrivance. It is still the image of mind reflected on us from innumerable objects. Add a mind like the human, said Philo. I know of no other, replied Cleanthes. And the liker the better, insisted Philo. To be sure, said Cleanthes. Now, Cleanthes, said Philo, with an air of alacrity and triumph, mark the consequences. First, by this method of reasoning, you renounce all claim to infinity in any of the attributes of the deity. For, as the cause ought only to be proportioned to the effect, and the effect, so far as it falls under our cognizance, is not infinite, what pretensions have we, upon your suppositions, to ascribe that attribute to the divine being? You will still insist that, by removing him so much from all similarity to human creatures, we give in to the most arbitrary hypothesis, and at the same time weaken all proofs of his existence. Secondly, you have no reason, on your theory, for ascribing perfection to the deity, even in his finite capacity, or for supposing him free from every error, mistake, or incoherence in his undertakings. There are many inexplicable difficulties in the works of nature, which, if we allow a perfect author to be proved a priori, are easily solved, and become only seeming difficulties from the narrow capacity of man who cannot trace infinite relations. But according to your method of reasoning, these difficulties become all real, and perhaps will be insisted on, as new instances of likeness to human art and contrivance. At least you must acknowledge that it is impossible for us to tell, from our limited views, whether this system contains any great faults, or deserves any considerable praise, if compared to other possible and even real systems. Could a peasant, if the Aeneid were read to him, pronounce that poem to be absolutely faultless, or even assign to it its proper rank among the productions of human wit, he who had never seen any other production? But were this world ever so perfect a production, it must still remain uncertain whether all the excellences of the work can be justly ascribed to the workmen. If we survey a ship, what an exalted idea must we form of the ingenuity of the carpenter who framed so complicated, useful, and beautiful a machine? And what surprise must we feel when we find him a stupid mechanic, 
who imitated others, and copied an art which, through a long succession of ages, after multiplied trials, mistakes, corrections, deliberations, and controversies, had been gradually improving. Many worlds might have been botched and bungled throughout an eternity, ere this system was struck out, much labor lost, many fruitless trials made, and a slow but continued improvement carried on during infinite ages in the art of world-making. In such subjects, who can determine where the truth, nay, who can conjecture where the probability lies, amidst a great number of hypotheses which may be proposed, and a still greater which may be imagined? And what shadow of an argument, continued Philo, can you produce from your hypothesis to prove the unity of the deity? A great number of men join in building a house or ship, in rearing a city, in framing a commonwealth. Why may not several deities combine in contriving and framing a world? This is only so much greater similarity to human affairs. By sharing the work among several, we may so much further limit the attributes of each, and get rid of that extensive power and knowledge which must be supposed in one deity, and which, according to you, can only serve to weaken the proof of his existence. And if such foolish, such vicious creatures as man, can yet often unite in framing and executing one plan, how much more those deities or demons, whom we may suppose several degrees more perfect? To multiply causes without necessity is indeed contrary to true philosophy but this principle applies not to the present case. Were one deity antecedently proved by your theory, who were possessed of every attribute requisite to the production of the universe, it would be needless, I own, though not absurd, to suppose any other deity existent. But while it is still a question whether all these attributes are united in one subject, or dispersed among several independent beings, by what phenomena in nature can we pretend to decide the controversy? Where we see a body raised in a scale, we are sure that there is in the opposite scale, however concealed from sight, some counterpoising weight equal to it. But it is still allowed to doubt whether that weight be an aggregate of several distinct bodies, or one uniform, united mass. And if the weight requisite very much exceeds anything which we have ever seen conjoined in any single body, the former supposition becomes still more probable and natural. An intelligent being of such vast power and capacity as is necessary to produce the universe, or, to speak in the language of ancient philosophy, so prodigious an animal, exceeds all analogy, and even comprehension. But further, Cleanthes, men are mortal and renew their species by generation, and this is common to all living creatures. The two great sexes of male and female, says Milton, animate the world. Why must this circumstance, so universal, so essential, be excluded from those numerous and limited deities? Behold, then, the theogony of ancient times brought back upon us. And why not become a perfect anthropomorphite? Why not assert the deity or deities to be corporeal, and have eyes, a nose, mouth, ears, etc.? Epicurus maintained that no man had ever seen reason but in a human figure, therefore the gods must have a human figure. And this argument, which is deservedly so much ridiculed by Cicero, becomes, according to you, solid and philosophical. In a word, Cleanthes, a man who follows your hypothesis is able, perhaps, to assert, 
or conjecture, that the universe, sometime, arose from something like design, but beyond that position he cannot ascertain one single circumstance, and is left afterwards to fix every point of his theology by the utmost license of fancy and hypothesis. This world, for aught he knows, is very faulty and imperfect, compared to a superior standard, and was only the first rude essay of some infant deity, who afterwards abandoned it, ashamed of his lame performance. It is the work only of some dependent, inferior deity, and is the object of derision to his superiors. It is the production of old age and dotage, and some superannuated deity, and ever since his death has run on at adventures, from the first impulse and active force which it received from him. You justly give signs of horror, Demia, at these strange suppositions, but these, and a thousand more of the same kind, are Cleanthes suppositions, not mine. From the moment the attributes of the deity are supposed finite, all these have place. And I cannot, for my part, think that so wild and unsettled a system of theology is in any respect preferable to none at all. These suppositions I absolutely disown, cried Cleanthes. They strike me, however, with no horror, especially when proposed in that rambling way in which they drop from you. On the contrary, they give me pleasure, when I see that, by the utmost indulgence of your imagination, you never get rid of the hypothesis of design in the universe, but are obliged at every turn to have recourse to it. To this concession I adhere steadily, and this I regard as a sufficient foundation for religion. End of Part 5 of Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion by David Hume